Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. Well, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And whether you are here in person today or whether you're catching us online, we're extremely grateful that you've taken the time to worship with us today. Today is the second week in a series that we are doing on the book of Gideon, the book of Gideon. It is not a book. It is a story, the story of Gideon. Everyone who went to seminary is like, he didn't go to seminary. He called it the book of Gideon. (laughs) Today is the second week that we're doing on the story of Gideon, where we're using the story of Gideon to help us examine what it looks like to live a life of significance. But before we dig into our story for today, let's just take a little bit of time and pray together. Lord, thanks for another opportunity to gather as your people. We do ask specifically today that you can help open our hearts and our minds to look at your word. Help us build relationships that push us closer to you. We do want to lift up the Sperling family as they lost Ken. We pray for the whole whole family, that you be with them as they've lost a a dad and a, a husband. Give them comfort and peace and support during this time. Lord, we're uh, thinking about some of these ministry events that we've got coming up to. Help us uh, act in a way that's pleasing and glorifying to you and helps push our kingdom, your kingdom forward. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so first thing we've got to do is we've got to recap a little bit because uh, last week was New Year's Eve, and while we had a great attendance at our one service after Pancakes and PJs, uh, we only did one service. And I know some of you might not have been here. No guilt, no shame. That's all right. Uh, But I want to make sure that you are caught up to where we're at in our story today. So story of Gideon. Basically, it goes like this. You've got the Israelites living in their new homeland, formerly known as the land of Canaan. But instead of living there faithfully with God, they have started turning to the gods of their new neighbors. And as a consequence, God has given the Israelites into the hands of their enemies to try and force them to seek him once again. Now, the particular enemy in the story of Gideon is this semi-nomadic grouping of tribes known as the Midianites, and they are an especially brutal people. It's hard for us to understand this kind of like oppressed tribal life, but in the ancient world, you basically had two ways of gaining wealth. You could work really, really, really hard. You could grow your crops. You could birth your livestock. You could craft whatever you craft, and, and through that, try and gain some wealth for your, your people and yourself. That usually tended to not produce a lot, and it was draining and difficult and taxing. The other way to gain wealth was that you just became like really big, bad, and strong, and you went to the people who work really, really hard, and you take what they worked really, really, really hard to create. This is what the Midianites did. Every time the Israelites would, you know, work hard all season to tend their farms or bird their livestock or create their textiles, the Midianites would ride in, kill a bunch of people, take all that the Israelites had been working on, camp out in their fields, maybe snatch up some kids to be concubines or slaves. It was terrible because every time the Israelites were like, all right, we got this. We have food to feed ourselves for the next year. The Midianites would sweep in and crush them for years and years. It must have felt pointless and futile. I mean, they would work so hard to grow their crops all year and it would finally look like they were going to 
have enough for the whole season and maybe a little bit extra, and then bam, Midianites were there feasting on their grain. And they would work super hard to birth some lambs and protect them from predators or whatever, and then bam, Midianites are having lamb chops for dinner. That's just what it was like to be an Israelite at that part in time. Now, uh, the Israelites, of course, they cried out to God and they said, God, save us. To which God sent a prophet to speak on his behalf. And this prophet essentially said, I don't know what you want me to tell you. You neither listen to God nor obey him. In fact, you're worshiping the gods of the Amalekites alongside him. What did, what did you expect would happen? But then God does what God so often does. He acted mercifully towards his people, and he decided to call someone to deliver the Israelites from the brutal oppression of the Midianites. Enter Gideon. God goes to this pretty random guy named Gideon and says, Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And like we saw last week, Gideon responds in two really interesting ways. First, he's like, all right, I don't know who you think you are. It's obvious that you, oh God, have abandoned us and don't really care anything about us. And then he's like, on top of that, I don't know who you think I am. I'm no mighty warrior. I'm the least of my family. I'm from the most insignificant of all the tribes of Jacob. You've got the wrong guy, God. But God, being God, he tends to be pretty persuasive sometimes. He persuades Gideon to embark on this insane quest to save his people. And that's essentially what brings us to where we're at in the story today. So if you've got your Bible with you, or you've got your Bible on your phone, flip or scroll to Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 25. It's also going to be up here on the screen. This is what it says. That same night, the Lord said to him, said, that's Gideon, him is Gideon there. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you've cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now this seems like kind of a random blip from the story, but this is actually one of the most significant parts of this story. Before God ever sends Gideon out to fight the enemies of Israel, he asks him to start to deal with the idols in his own home. God says to him, Gideon, in the place you live, your father's home, there is an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. You need to destroy those and make an offering to me. Here's the point to recognize. Before we can do anything out there, we've got to start to deal with what's in here. Yes, Israel had terrible enemies. Yes, they were oppressed and killed and abused by the Midianites. But the biggest problem the Israelites had was not from outside oppression. It was the worship of false gods and idols that had gotten them into that predicament in the first place. So God says, first things first, you've got to deal with those false gods that you worship. So he sends Gideon to destroy the altars in his own home. And this is what I want you to see. One of the most significant things we can do with our lives is constantly work at tearing down our idols and false gods. Now, a few weeks ago, there was this news story buzzing around the internet 
uh, alongside a nativity scene and a menorah in the Iowa State House of Representatives, a group known as the Satanic Temple was allowed to build a statue of a winged, goat-headed Satanic figure. The Satanic Temple said that according to their rights as Americans who have freedom of worship, if there can be a menorah and a Hanukkah, then they should be allowed to erect their statue of Satan alongside them. Now, since I'm choosing to tell this story, I got to do it in a fair way. Uh, the Satanic Temple, they don't actually believe in supernatural deities. They don't believe in a literal Satan or a literal God or any of that. Instead, they just use Satan as a figurehead to represent their secular, humanist, anti-authoritarian agenda, which is super ironic. Uh, they claim that they don't believe in any supernatural beings, but by believing and promoting that idea, aren't they actually like doing exactly what Satan wants them to do? I don't know, whatever. Uh, but the point is, a lot of people did not take well to this statue of a demonic, goat-headed Satan looking down on baby Jesus in the manger. And it became a bit of a hot, debated, and controversial topic across the U.S. for the last couple weeks. Now, the story gets more interesting. There's this guy named Michael Cassidy who had had enough of this false altar erected towards Satan, and he decided that he needed to do something about it. So one day, while in the Iowa House of State Representatives, Mr. Cassidy walked up to the statue of Satan, ripped off his goat head, and threw it in the trash, and then promptly got arrested. Now, I personally haven't seen any video footage of how this went down. I would love to see that, but uh, this is how I imagine it in my head. Any, like, professional wrestlers, fans out there? Yeah? <laughs> I imagine that, like, he walked up to it, and the announcer was like, and Michael Cassidy has Satan in the headlock, and he body slams him, and his head came off. You know, that's, that's how I imagine this going down. And uh, I tell this story because it's a great example of how not to apply this part of the Gideon story. This story is not encouraging us to go out and rip the heads off of Satan's statues or desecrate some other religion's meeting place, but it is still encouraging us to destroy our idols. And I actually think that some historical context about idolatry is going to help give us a better idea of what this means for us. You see, idolatry for the Israelites usually took on one of two different forms. There was a type of idolatry that we see in Exodus 32, which is where we try and make the God of the Bible into an image that we find acceptable. In that story, you've got Moses, if you remember, he's up on the mountain talking with God. And meanwhile, his brother Aaron is collecting a bunch of gold earrings from the people that they then cast into the shape of a calf. This is from Exodus 32. When Aaron saw this, saw this golden calf, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now there's a really important detail in this. And that is that the word Lord in verse 5 is in all caps. Whenever you see the Lord, in all caps in the Old Testament, it is a stand-in for God's proper name, Yahweh. You see, the ancient Jews, they regarded God's proper name with such reverence that whenever these passages were read that said Yahweh, 
they instead would say the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. That way they weren't taking the Lord's name in vain. And so when the Jewish rabbis were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, something we call the Septuagint, they kept that tradition alive and translated instances of the divine name Yahweh with the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. Now, we keep this tradition alive in our modern English translations. And so in the Old Testament, any instance of the divine name Yahweh, you'll see in English, Lord, in all upper cap letters. Does that make sense? In first service, someone was like, nope. (laughs) So in this passage, when Aaron looks at the calf and builds an altar in front of it, he says, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. What's happening is that the people gather and offer sacrifices to this idol who they're claiming is the God of the Bible. Now, what they've done is they've taken the God of the Bible and tried to make him into something that fits better with their understanding of the world. They've tried to make God into something that fits better with their life, their experiences, and their worldview, rather than just letting God be God. This is the first type of idolatry, where we take God, and instead of trying to understand him as he's revealed himself to us, we try and shape him into an image that's more acceptable, more convenient, easier. And this is not something that was just limited to Moses or Gideon. This happens all the time. Every time that we try to take God and reduce him into something less offensive, something less culturally abrasive, maybe even something more understandable, we're actually doing the same thing that Aaron and the Israelites did with the golden calf. Anytime we say something like, I could never believe in a God who judges people based on their sexual preference or would allow bad things to happen to good people or would say this or do that. What we're doing is forcing our preferred image onto God, which is something that God's been very clear from the start. We don't have the right to do. He's God. We are not. He tells us what he is like. That is not something that we get to do for him. So that's the first type of idolatry that we see in the Old Testament. When we intentionally try to make God into something that he's not. And the second type that we often see, and this is probably what we're seeing in Gideon, is more of like cultural syncretism. In our story, God goes to Gideon and he tells him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. So what's happening here is that Gideon's family had erected two things. First, there was an altar to Baal. Who's Baal, you ask? Well, I'm so glad you're interested, uh, because I'm going to tell you. Baal was like the most important god in the Canaanite pantheon. He was the storm god, and as such, he was responsible for weather patterns. So he determined when it would rain, how much it would rain, and who it would rain on. And as you can imagine, people who were primarily agrarian and living in an arid landscape, um, rain was a, a matter of life or death. And an Asherah pole, and I, I'm going to be as polite and delicate as I can be with this one, an Asherah pole 
was typically a tree that was carved in a phallic representation of the goddess Asherah. If you didn't already guess it from the shape of the Asherah pole, uh, Asherah was the Canaanite goddess most likely associated with human fertility. I just want you to think about like waking up every morning, looking out your window and seeing that erected in your yard. Interesting landscaping. Uh, To the Canaanites though, Asherah would have been the one who determined who has kids and how many. So together, Asherah and Baal, they represented the two parts that all of ancient culture depended on, growing stuff and birthing stuff. Here's the most important part of this. The idolatry present here in Israel, it's not actually an outright rejection of the God of the Bible. It's an outright rejection of God alone. The problem in the story is not that the people had turned totally away from the God of their forefathers. Instead, it's that the Israelites had started to adopt the polytheism of their neighbors. So Canaanites were polytheistic. Uh, Basically, their system worked like this. You had, this is not how all polytheistic systems work, but it is how theirs worked. There was various gods who had power over different things, agriculture, commerce, sex, beauty. And you would make sacrifices and do various acts of worship to get these gods favor so that they would help you in that area of your life. The Israelites most likely would have maintained some sort of formal expression to the God of the Bible. They probably still practiced Passover. They probably still had the tabernacle. But they also wanted their fields to grow. So they erected altars to Baal. And they also wanted big families. So they erected Asherah poles. And here's what this type of idolatry does. It creates compartments in your life. It says, I do believe in the God of the Bible, but I also really want to have a successful harvest or a big family. And I'm willing to forget about God and his teaching in that area of my life as long as I'm getting the outcomes that I desire. For us, it may not be a a large crop yield and having eight sons, but our culture has its own set of false gods and idols that promise to give us what only God can truly give. Think about some of the things that rule the way we live our lives. Uh, We've got the God of comfort who tells us, if you're willing to pay me enough, you will never have to be uncomfortable again. You can spend your time with heated floors in your bathroom, cars with remote starts so that you don't ever have to walk out in the cold, climate controlled everything, closets full of clothes that make us feel cozy and good about ourselves, and we can artfully design our homes to make us feel zen every time we sit down. You can spend the rest of your days in comfortable bliss, never having to do anything that makes you feel uneasy or bad. If only you give me enough attention, there will be no more tears, no more pain, just blissful comfort. Which... None of that is on its own bad, except that the God of comfort in our country has convinced many of us that these things are so good, so important, so worthwhile, that people are literally willing to go bankrupt trying to make sure that they spend all of their lives feeling comfortable. We so often neglect radical generosity, wise stewardship, all for the sake of worshiping comfort. Have you ever stopped 
just to consider how insane that is, that we can be convinced it is more worthy to spend money on keeping your toes warm while you poop than it is feeding the poor or spreading the message of Jesus. Now, don't get me started on the God of entertainment. Now, the God of entertainment, he tells us that the best use of your time is to spend hours upon hours upon hours being entertained. Sports, movies, TV shows, video games, concerts, theater. Again, none of these things are bad, but in our culture, the God of entertainment has this way of ruling over us. It says this is the thing to live for. You know, the thing that'll help you get through your day is knowing that you get to sit down on your couch at the end of a hard day and binge that TV show that's captured your heart. And it tells us you should be willing to set aside hours on hours on hours and thousands of dollars upon thousands of dollars. Instead of spending time developing deep relationships with others or serving or praying, we can worship the God of entertainment who promises to numb the pain and give us an escape for as long as we worship him. I could go on for hours about the different false gods that are constantly fighting to be worshipped alongside our God, success, pleasure, self-autonomy, beauty, politics. And when you think of it like that, the situation for us isn't all that different than it was for Gideon. It's not that we're saying, ah, the God of the Bible, he doesn't matter. Instead, we're saying, I believe in God, but I also love comfort. Oh, I would do anything for comfort. And I do believe in God, but I also serve pleasure. I would sell my soul for the right pleasure. So we often slip into the trap of ignoring what God wants so that we can have what these other false gods promise to us. Now it's important to recognize that Gideon comes into this situation. God knows the Israelites are being oppressed by the Midianites. But the first thing that God asked Gideon to do, it's not to go out and raise an army. It's not to go make a powerful speech. Instead, it's to start to deal with the false gods and idols that he and his own family are serving. Now we've got to ask here, why is destroying idols and false gods such a big deal? Well, other than like the obvious answer that God desires that we worship him and him alone, there are some pretty significant reasons. First of which is that false gods have this way of destroying your soul. They promise us significance and happiness and meaning, which we're all looking for, but they deliver it in an empty and oftentimes destructive way. Think about pleasure, something that's not bad at all, but if we worship the God of pleasure, we often end up pursuing it at the expense of those around us. We ruin relationships. We end up doing things that are degrading to ourselves and society. It erodes our soul's well-being. But perhaps even more impactful than that, the false gods that we worship tend to have a disproportionate impact on the next generation. The people who end up oftentimes getting hurt the most by our worship of false gods are our kids. Just think about parents who worship success and how wounded their kids end up being. Just think about how many things that your parents did that were sinful that you can't seem to stop doing yourself. 
false gods have a disproportionate impact on the next generation. Now here's some application for fighting the false gods and idols in our lives. Um, It's not like we're going to be like Michael Cassidy, ripping off Satan's statue's head. Partly, that's just not the world we live in. There's not a whole lot of like altars and idols sitting around uh, for most of us. But the bigger deal here is that fighting false gods and idols, it's not a once and done thing. This is something that we have to do our entire lives because we as humans just have this innate tendency to slip into idolatry. So here are two lifelong practices to help you not fall into the two types of idolatry that we talked about. First, be constantly growing in your understanding of who God is. There's no better way to fight that desire to shape God into what we want him to be than to be constantly confronted with who he reveals himself to be. Make scripture a regular part of your diet. Read your Bible. Read about your Bible. Listen to people teach and preach on the Bible. All of this helps us be confronted with who God is, not who we want him to be. And secondly, we got to look for our false gods and we, we got to try and kill them. A good question that you can ask yourself regularly is, what is keeping me from living into God's purposes in my life? When you take some time to answer that, you're probably going to come face to face with some of the false gods and idols that you worship. And I don't know what it's going to take for you, but you got to figure out ways to destroy them. All right. This feels like it should be the end of the sermon. It's not. <laughs> we got a little bit more of the story to do. So God asked Gideon to take out his family's altars and Asherah poles, and here's how it goes down. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But, excuse me, Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. All right, there's only one thing I want you to to remember out of this part of the story, and that is Gideon was afraid to do what God asked. You would think that after having this incredible encounter with God that he'd be like, yeah, let's do it. We're going to crush some idols tonight, God. But instead he was afraid. He was afraid of his own family. He was afraid of the townspeople. So instead of going and destroying the altar for all to see, he does it at a time that no one's going to notice. Let's read what happens next. It says, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, 
If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowlful of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So uh, when I was in high school, early high schooler, back before I was a Jesus follower, we read this story in my youth group and it inspired me. You see, there was this girl in my high school that I had a huge crush on, but I was too afraid to talk to her. So being inspired by Gideon, I went home and was like, God, if you're really there, <clears throat> I'm going to need a sign on whether or not I should ask this girl for her number. Now, for all you youngins in the room, um, this was before smartphones and Snapchats and stuff like that. So you actually had to ask girls for their number, which if they acquiesced, they'd write it on a piece of paper, and then you'd have to go home and call their home phone, to which their dad usually answered, and you'd have to be like, um, yes, sir, I was wondering if Karen was there. Different times. But anyways, being inspired by Gideon, I decided that I would ask God for a sign on whether or not I should ask this girl for her number. Now, the sign I decided upon, please don't ask me why, because my only answer is that I was a dumb teenage boy, but the sign I decided upon was that I would stand out by the road in front of my parents' house, and if the first car that passed was red, and the second car that passed was black, and the third car that passed was white, then I would know that God wanted me to try and get this girl's number. (laughs) Now, this is a true story, by the way. I am... I went out with my little journal where I had written the color order that I would need to see to get the affirmative from God. And uh, what color was the first car that drove by? It was red. I was like, yes, I'm in the game. So I stood there. My parents' road wasn't that busy, so I was out there for a while. So uh, (laughs) I was standing there. Second car goes by, black, you know, two for two. Was God really going to give me a sign? Third car comes by, is white. I was like, I can't believe it. The very sign I asked for, God gave it to me. Maybe there is this God out there after all. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten a sign from God, but it really bolsters your confidence. And uh, so, I <laughs> so I went to school the next day, really confident. And I said, hey, girl, can I get your number? Which is how you said things back in like 2002. Now, you'll never guess what she said. She said, ew. (laughs) Yeah. In hindsight, I should have been like, hey, did you fall from heaven? Because yesterday I got a sign from God saying that I should ask you out. I bet that would have like gone over way better. But regardless, I was shook. God, how could you do this to me? I thought I was like Gideon. You gave me a sign and I put myself out there. Now I tell this story again because it's a terrible way to apply the story of Gideon. (laughs) This story has an amazing narrative. Gideon, he goes and he asks for this insane set of signs and God obliges him. 
And it's easy to read that and think, yeah, I, I need to do that kind of stuff. Whenever I'm unsure about something, I just need to ask God for a sign, just like Gideon did. But that's not actually the point of the story. The point has much more to do with how Gideon is portrayed. Like we said earlier, God asked Gideon to first deal with his family's idols. So what does Gideon do? Well, he goes out and he deals with those idols, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. And then he starts to gather this army around him to live out what God said he's going to do through him. And Gideon, again, he starts to get a little bit freaked out. Our passage says that Gideon went to God and said, if you'll save Israel by my hands as you've promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground around it is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Gideon's basically like, I don't know about this, God. I know that you called me to do this. I had that crazy experience with you before when you first called me, but I don't know anymore. Are you really going to do what you say? Give me some sort of sign that you're actually going to save Israel by my hand, which God does. Gideon's like, I'm going to lay this fleece out, and if the fleece is wet in the morning and the ground is dry all around it, I'll know that you are with me. Sure enough, God does it. But if you remember back from last week, Gideon has already asked for a sign when God first confronted him. So at this point in Gideon's life, we've had two signs from God, and God protected Gideon from his family and townsfolk when he went and destroyed the altars. You would think he'd be like, I'm ready to do this. I'm feeling confident. I'm feeling gung-ho. But he's not. Instead, he's like, well, maybe that sign was a freak accident. And like someone walked by the fleece and used it to dry off after their shower and then set it down exactly where they had found it afterwards. So he says, I need another sign. So he says to God, don't be angry with me. You, whenever you start a sentence like that, you know, like, yeah. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. Judges is going to great lengths to show us this point. You don't have to be the bravest the strongest, the biggest, the most capable, or the most well-equipped for God to use. This is like the point of the story. It's less about the person that God chooses to use and more about the God who works in that person. That's why he chooses Gideon. If you remember at the beginning of the story, when God first called Gideon, Gideon was like, why me? He said, pardon me, my Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least. To which God replies to him, yeah, but I will be with you. This is the point of the story of Gideon, that God is faithful to us even though we are weak, even though we are scared, even though we doubt, God still wants to work in and through us because it's by working in the weak, cowardly, and unsure that God shows his power to the world. Here's what this means for you. Do you ever feel 
unqualified to serve God in the world, God still wants to use you. You ever feel scared about what God is asking you? God can still use you. Do you ever doubt the purposes of God or just doubt God, period? God is still with you. God wants to use you. God wants to work through you. If God can work through Gideon, he can work through us. Now, last week, Mike shared a series of four questions that we're trying to answer in this series. What kind of factors will serve as barriers for a life of meaning and purpose? What kind of factors will serve as catalysts to a life of meaning and purpose? What kind of person can God use in meaningful ways? And how does God use us? This week, we are seeing some answers to question number two and question number three. What kind of factors serve as a catalyst to a, a life of meaning and purpose? Well, it oftentimes starts with us turning from the gods and idols of our culture and turning to the God of the Bible. Because one of the most significant things we can all do is constantly be killing our false gods and idols. And what kind of person does God use in meaningful ways? The answer to that is you. If he can use Gideon from the smallest, weakest tribe in Israel, Gideon the cowardly, Gideon the doubter, he not only is able to use you, but he wants to. Let's wrap this up. Two things to remember from this part of the story. Oftentimes, God is asking us to deal with what's in here before we tackle what's out there. We need to work on our idols and false gods. And if God can use Gideon, he can use us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this story, how it challenges us and shapes us and encourages us to follow you more closely. We pray that for all of us who are feeling doubt or fear about what it means to follow you, that you can give us that reassurance that it's not about us, it's about you, that you can use anyone. We also pray, too, that you help us see our idols and false gods, show us what we need to do to, to defeat them so that we can keep our lives aligned with you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.